If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn or scroll, have your access to your Bibles through the book of Galatians is where we're going to focus today. Let me ask a question. Have you ever uh, had a case of mistaken identity where someone thinks that you're someone else that, than who you really are? This actually happens to me quite often, uh, or I, I make the mistake and do it to other people quite often. This weekend, I was in the bank, and there was a, a lady at the, uh, the ATM machine inside the bank, and it was my neighbor Kelly from the apartment that we used to live in. And uh, so, man, I strolled up in huge confidence. She, so I was like, man, she's got a new dog. I've not met the dog. And so I go, I walk, I'm like, hey, Kelly, what's up? When did you get your dog? And this girl turned and looked at me, and it was not Kelly. Like, it was, like, but I mean, I was with such confidence. I was like, I knew that was her, and I had to explain. And it's like, so sorry. And she, she laughed at me, and I went on my way. And uh, it often happens to me, too, or people mistake me for somebody. I, I, when I walk around this city, it's not as really good anymore, but a lot of times I used to get uh, mistaken for Matt Lauer. And so, like, now it's not a good thing, but I remember one time we had some friends visiting. I was sitting in Times Square, uh, like, out, outside, not far from Rockefeller Center, and I was sitting there. I kind of had a little something like this on, something like maybe Matt would wear, and I'm sitting at a table talking to these people, and I see this couple looking over at me, and she's going, and he's going, no, I don't think so. And they're like arguing back and forth. I knew they were arguing, trying to figure out if I was Matt Lauer. And so I just kind of made eye contact with him. And I did this. I was like, and she was like, I told you, I told you. And, and uh, they started snapping pictures and stuff. And uh, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's not so funny. A church I used to work at, uh, we had ministers on call, different ministers on staff. And I happened to be on call one day when we got our horrific news. Uh, that somebody, their extended family son had been killed by somebody else. And uh, they had traveled to go there. And I was trying to call the family from our church at this family's home to let them know we were praying for them, what we could do. And so I called and I asked for the person. I said, hey, this is Patrick Thompson. Can I speak to so-and-so? And they just hung up the phone on me. And I was like, well, maybe they just misunderstood me. So I called back again and I said, hey, this is Patrick Thompson. Can I speak to there? They should be and so I hung up again. I said, like, I'm going to give it one more time. Maybe I have the wrong number, so I'll start differently. And so when I picked it up, a different voice answered. And they said, I don't know what you think you're doing, but please stop calling here. I said, look, I'm a pastor from one of their churches. And they were like, oh, you are. And what I found out, the guy who had actually killed their son's name was Patrick Thompson. And I'm calling, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what a horrible coincidence of this mistaken identity where we can be confused for something else. But this doesn't just happen in our personal lives. I think this happens in our spiritual lives. Almost every day I meet people, and when they learn that I'm a pastor or I'm a Christian, they think they know what that means. They think they understand what that means. They have this preconceived idea of who I am, what I believe, and how I treat people. They think they understand my political views, my views on social issues, and how I probably have a general disdain for people who don't think like me. They think I'm probably prudish, conservative, boring, uneducated, and maybe even just a little bit crazy. It's certainly not an attractive thing, right? When when that's a lot of times I meet people and I say I'm a Christian, that's what they think. But I quickly try to tell them, that they have mistaken me for someone or something else. Because that is not how I understand Christianity to be. This is not how Jesus described what it meant to follow him. This is not what it means to, to actually live out 
the Christian life. Because when we look at Jesus, instead of being this prudish, boring life, he called us to a life filled with an overwhelming amount of pleasure. A pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. And when we hear those words, we think that maybe they've mistaken us for something else. But the truth is, that's what true Christianity is. It is a life filled with pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. And if you've been around our church for very long, you've heard me use those four words very often. And they're actually are the groundwork that we're using for our first four sermon series this year. We just talked about pursuing peace and how we have peace in our life. And now we're moving on to this idea of how do we embrace pleasure. So today we're going to start this series by learning to embrace pleasure in the Christian life. We started with peace because it was the foundational thing that we needed. It was the foundational part of our life. And now we're moving on to pleasure because it is a concept that seems to me to be the most foreign descriptor of what people think about when they think of Christianity. I mean, even many Christians, when I meet them and they hear me say that the Christian life is pleasurable, they kind of look at me funny. And they're like, you know, I'm not sure if you should use that word. And I'm like, why? Why not? Why wouldn't we use that word? They were like, well, you know, it just sounds like it's too much fun or something racy or, or worldly. And they just, you know, maybe we're, it doesn't sound serious enough to fit Jesus or God. And they're just like, why don't we use the word like, the word like joyful or blessed instead, like hashtag blessed. You know, we got like, why don't we use those? Those sound much more spiritual than pleasure. But this kind of thinking is, I think, one of the reasons we have gotten to the point of having a mistaken identity as Christians. Is we think, we take a word like pleasure and we go like, hmm. But that's actually what people are desiring in their life. It's what people want. And we say, well, that's not what Christianity is. And so they don't see how they can interact. We can be joyful or blessed, but we think, you know what? I can't be too fun-loving. I can't be too relaxed. We can't be seekers of pleasure. But that's not what Scripture says. I want to read some verses to you. These will pop up on the screen. I'm just going to read them to you quick just so you hear. This is Jesus speaking in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Luke 6, 37 and 38 says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. It will be given in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over so much that it will pour out into your lap. For the measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. So much you can't even contain it. Ecclesiastes 8.15, Solomon in his wisdom writing says this, And I commend, I commend joy for men who have nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. We're supposed to be pleasurable. Matthew eleven nineteen says this, The Son of Man, talking about Jesus, came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by deeds. These writers repeat over and over again, and Jesus demonstrated over and over again in his life that a follower of Christ isn't about embracing a new set of rules, a new set of regulations, but instead it is about embracing the ability to truly experience pleasure in our life. I want you to hear something this morning. If you see, look around this room, everybody that you see, we all have one thing in common. We have many things in common, but this we have in common. We're all pleasure seekers. We all have a desire for pleasure. We are created with that desire. 
Even as babies, we, we gravitate toward experiences of pleasure rather than painful or bitter ones. I remember when our kids were young, we would like, I don't know if it was mean or whatever, but Chase does this to his kids, so I don't feel as bad. Now, like, get, we get, would give them lemons and let them taste it, and they'd be like, oh, you know, and throw the lemon away, and they're like, let's do it again, you know. And, uh, but then you give a kid a piece of chocolate, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, and it's like, how do I get more of this? They, we gravitate toward pleasurable experiences. God created us with a desire for pleasure, and he also provides for our pleasure. Think back to even the very first story in the Bible, right? The creation of man and woman. He placed them in this beautiful, beautiful garden. And he said, everything in here, you're surrounded by beauty. Everything in here is for your good. It's yours, except for one thing. This one thing will bring you pain. Stay away from it. But everything else is yours for your pleasure. He gave us all of that. Even at the very beginning, he met the desires for pleasure. And this desire for pleasure is normal. It's how God originally designed us. And so many of us who call ourselves as followers, we actually shun away from this desire. We depress it in our lives and feel like it's unnatural, unhealthy, or ungodly. Why do we do that? I think there's three reasons why we do that. And the first is this. I think we've been taught that the Christian life is primarily about suffering. Suffering. We, we look at the payment of Christ on the cross, and we've been told that we have our own crosses to bear. And I want to be clear, while our life, we will have times of suffering, we will have times that we need to sacrifice, we will have times that we will be persecuted, that doesn't mean that it's the absence of pleasure. Jesus went to the cross, he carried the weight of our sin, not that we would have to carry it as well, so that we wouldn't have to carry it, so that that burden would be taken off of us, and we could live in freedom to live out the Christian life of joy, of pleasure, peace, meaning and hope. This time a year ago, I was in Israel doing a tour of the Holy Lands, and one of the things that we did when we were in downtown Jerusalem was to walk what's called the Via Della Rosa, the, the stations of the cross. The, they're, they're not really historical in nature anymore, but the church has set up places where you can say, this is where Christ did this on his way to the cross. And you can kind of experience, and it was, it was a very moving experience to walk through that. But I was watching, and there were people actually carrying their own cross, going from station to station, carrying the burden that Christ had already carried for them. And I thought, I think that is the last thing Jesus would want us to do. He did that. He went to the cross for us. He sacrificed for us so that we would not have to carry that burden. We can certainly remember and we can reflect along that, and there's, that's, that actually motivates us to live out of the power of his sacrifice. So we think we've been taught that the Christian life is primarily about suffering. We've also been taught that maybe earthly pleasures are sinful, right? Like uh, anything from this earth, anything that's good, that maybe people that aren't Christians like, those things are sinful. Christians are notorious for creating lists of things that we can't do, actions that God might frown upon, or we must seek to to do these favorite sayings of Christians. We must protect our witness, guard our testimonies, live above reproach. And it's not that God has not given us standards to live by. He certainly has. He has not dis- he certainly distinguished sin from righteousness. But I want you to hear about this, is when we end up creating these lists, guarding, protecting, and living above things, we actually end up living this guarded and protected life that is unapproachable by people. And that's not what God wants. It's not that you, we could be unapproachable. 
I want you to hear this this morning. All pleasure isn't sin, and all restraint is not righteousness. Just because you hold back from something doesn't mean it's righteous. And just because you choose to step into something doesn't mean it's sin. We look to God as our standard. We look to Christ. And there are things that I get to do in this life and experience in this Christian life that are more pleasurable than anything I've ever done because I'm living according to the way God created me. It's not restraint is not righteousness. The third thing I think we fall trapped to is this, is that we've been taught that the Christian life is serious business. Like it's serious you know, if, if it's so serious, then we've got no time to waste. We've got no time for pleasure, no time for fun, no time for anything but hard work, sacrifice, and spiritual toil. And while the work of Christ was extremely ser- serious to our future and to our lives, his work is actually what set us free and put us on the path of joy instead of despair, on the path of hope instead of fear, and on the path of peace instead of worry. The serious work of, the, of Christ paved the road for you and I to experience the pleasures of this world and of, this, of his creation like never before. God provided for our desires. The overall problem is that we often take the extreme view of these things, that we should embrace suffering, avoid you know, the, the traps of the world, and the serious, embrace the serious nature of our faith. And we make those the defining characteristics of Christianity. And while they are certainly part of our faith journey, they are not the whole of our faith journey. We, we, we will suffer. We do need to avoid sin. There are times we have serious moments in our faith. That's part of it, but it is not all of it. The life of a Christ follower is never di- designed to be defined by rules and regulations, by a new religious structure, by a life of toil and trouble until we get to the other side. It isn't about what we can't do, that one tree in the garden. It is about everything we get to do, the rest of the garden, the 99% that God said, this is for you. So how do we move from looking at Christianity Christianity as this dodgy religious, uh, stodgy, not dodgy, (laughs) stodgy religious set of rules that keep us from having any fun to the idea that life of a Christ follower is the most pleasurable life possible. This is the book of Galatians. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Paul wrote this book to a church that was struggling with this, that was struggling with adding more rules, creating restraint and and equating restraint to righteousness. I mean, going so much to say, you know, I don't want to do anything to to displease God, so I'm just not going to do anything. And they, they were holding back, and he's like, stop. That is not what you, the gospel of Christ is. That's not what the gospel of grace is. And just like in our Pursue Peace series, we talked about these anchor points to hook our life into. In this pleasure series, we're going to actually talk about desires that we should embrace. Desires are things that we want in our life, cravings that God has put within us that make us move forward. Desires like love and connection, significance, safety, excitement, contribution, and growth. Deep desires that he's placed in us. These are basic desires that we all have. And they've been not only given to us by God, but he has given us healthy pursuits and healthy ways to, to reach those desires. Psalms 37, 4 says this. It says, if you will delight yourself in the Lord, then he will give you what? The desires of your heart. I love food. I do. I love eating. Like, 
Yelp is my, you know, it's on the front page of my phone. Like if I need some, I've got to, if you, if you ever need something, I actually have a Google list on my phone, on my map. Like if you're in this part of the city, I've got places starred that I have been to and want to go to. Matt and Gina have called me like the walking Yelp. And, uh, but I just love experiencing new food. But I'm going to tell you, I have a favorite food. And there's sometimes I just crave a steak. I mean, like, I'm just like, it's time. It's time. Like, I don't know how many days or hours it's been, but it's time. I have to go. And I start making some phone calls. And I'm going to tell you this, even if nobody else is going, I'm telling you, I've eaten a steak by myself before. Like, I just have. Like, I love it. But we have these cravings to fulfill, like, physically. But God has given us these spiritual cravings in our life as well. And he's given us ways to experience those. And he says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you those desires. So today we're going to look at this first desire that we should embrace, and it is the desire to embrace the gospel. Now that word means so many probably different things to different people sitting in this room. So let me just quickly define it for us and what I'm talking about today. It is a simple idea that my hope, my rescue, my sustaining force in my life comes from the fact that I can experience complete forgiveness, complete redemption, and complete restoration through Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. And this is what Paul talks about in Galatians 1, 3 through 5. He says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The desire, this desire that I just talked about, the desire of the gospel is the root of all pleasure that we will experience in our life. If you actually take time and are willing to take a deep look into your soul and be honest with you, I'm going to tell you something that you'll see there. You'll discover a deep desire for reconciliation with your creator, the one who made you, the one who formed you. And you'll be like, no, I don't even even believe there's a God. I don't believe all that. I don't believe all this. But I'm just going to ask you, if you will kind of strip away preconceived notions, cultural ideas that have been placed on you, and you just look and be honest with your soul, there's a longing there for reconciliation. There's a longing there to be made right, to be made whole. And when we stop looking to God for this fulfillment of our desires, we will constantly be trying to fill it with other pursuits that will leave us lacking and empty and still wanting for hope and home. We may find ourselves, you know, temporarily satisfied for a season, but eventually that source of pleasure is going to fade away if I'm not looking and desiring gospel and fully reconciling and restoring myself to the one who created me. And we'll go from desire to desire to desire to desire, and they'll all leave us empty. At this to me, growing up, this was taught to me as the idea of the law of diminishing returns. And here's how it was taught to me. It was taught to me in the concept of dating. Like when you're at church, the church I grew up in, they were like, you know, nothing until you get married. Like they, I think they were even scared that we were holding hands before we got married kind of stuff. And uh, I remember one guy's sermon was like, holding hands can lead to pregnancy. And I was like, what? That's, that's not what my dad told me, you know? And uh, I was like, I need to talk to my dad about that. But uh, it was this idea. And I remember like, I remember that first time her name was Wendy. We were on a bus together coming back from a church trip and we were sitting, we both knew we kind of liked each other and we were sitting beside each other and somehow her hand ended up like this right beside me on the bus. 
And, man, I, I had my hand, like, on my leg right here. And I was, like, man, I was sweating. I was, like, nervous. I was, like, how do I do this? Like, what do I do? And, like, thank God that the bus hit this bump. And it went, and I was, like, oh. And I was, like, oh, my gosh, we're holding hands. Like, our, our hands and fingers are actually touching. Like, we did not move. We did not move for the rest of that trip. We were just like, oh, my gosh, this is happening. Like, and, uh, like, the next few times we're together, like, it just became natural. Like, I'd reach over and grab her hand. Like, I, I was, like, stroking her hand. Like, we went from this to this, you know, and it's like, oh, my gosh. And then I was like, well, I, I want to put my arm around her neck, you know, so how do I do this and all that. And so I was like, what well, was so exciting at one point just became normal. Didn't feed that pleasure. It was the next step and the next step. And that's the way we run through our lives, isn't it? If we can't find something that sustains our desire for pleasure in our life, we end up just jumping from source to source to source. And the problem is this, is we find these other things that try to fill our life with than the gospel. So if the gospel is so fulfilling, if this actually is just identifying that God created us and loves us and wants a relationship with us, then why doesn't everyone just embrace it? Why don't we all just jump on the Jesus bandwagon and ride it from here to eternity? Because the truth is this. We face the same problem that the church in Galatia did. People were coming in, and they were actually misrepresenting what the gospel was. They were taking truths of it, bending it, and twisting it, and actually, instead of creating freedom, they were creating control. They were distorting the gospel. And this is what Galatians 1, 6 through 8 says. It says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if you are, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. People were showing up and saying, look, it's not enough. Grace isn't enough. Let me tell you some other things. And what I want us to do very quickly as we finish out our time together is talk about and just help you identify some of those distorted gospels in our life, substitute gospels, things that we grab onto. Our people tell us this is what it means. And it actually is a form of control rather than a form of freedom. And the first one is the gospel of works. It's this idea that we have to do something to earn God's favor, that it's up to me. I must do more good than bad and follow the rules of the Bible, and then I'll be deserving of heaven. And the distortion is this. It's up to me to make God accept me and love me. I must just do enough good. And can I tell you where this deteriorates into very quickly? This deteriorates into legalism, where it's really i got to figure out the rules, and as long as I'm following the rules better than somebody else, when I stand before God, as long as I'm in the top 50%, I'll be good to go. That's the gospel of works, and it's just not true. Can I tell you what this was missing? There is no grace in this gospel. There's no grace here. It's missing grace. But there's another substitute gospel that we often buy into, and I call it the gospel of wisdom. And it's this idea that I have to fully understand, fully know everything. I have to fill my mind with knowledge and understanding before I can fully trust God. Once I know everything about God, then I'll follow God. And if I, as long as I can ascribe to this certain set of facts, rules, and regulations that I can check myself all for, then I've got it. And we start to create this wisdom that it is about knowledge. And the distortion is this, that I must under, understand everything about God to experience salvation. And this deteriorates into intellect, 
was just knowledge. It's just about knowing who God is, not actually knowing him. The great Billy Graham passed away this week, and, you know, a sad day for, for this earth, but an incredible day, I'm sure, for him as he stood in the presence of his creator. I met Billy Graham once in a very awkward situation in a bathroom urinal, right? It was a very, I didn't post that. That was not my story this week on social media. I met him. I know a lot about Billy Graham, and even though I saw him in person once, I don't know the man. I wouldn't know him. But we think if I can know more about God, then I'll get to know God. And that's what we miss here. There is no faith in this gospel. It's missing faith. That's the gospel of wisdom. We think it's just knowledge. And then there's this gospel of wonders, that it's all about signs and miracles. It's all about something, you know, slugging up in this cloud and, wow, God is speaking to me through this cloud formation or God, this happened in my life, or I see this, or I tripped on this rock. What are you trying to slow me down for? It's like we're looking at God really under every rock. Like, show me. And, and we come to continually think we have to receive some new miracle, some new revelation from God for me to experience salvation. If I'm not, something must be wrong. And what there, this deteriorates down into is just emotion. It's all about emotion and how I feel. If I wake up and have a bad day, have a bad feeling, maybe God doesn't love me anymore now. Or things start going wrong in my life, I'm like, oh, i got to do something for God because things are happening bad. And we live off of emotion. And there's no truth in this gospel. There's no truth here. We don't live on the promises of God. We live on the emotional feelings that we have. There's another gospel uh, substitute, and it's the gospel of penance. And here's what I mean by penance is that, that I must live my life with regret I've done so much bad. I owe God something that I will never be able to repay him. I'm always behind. I can never keep up. It's like with God, I'm just paying the minimum on my credit card bill, and the next month it's still there, and it's still there, and I don't have any spending power, and I'm just stuck. And that's what penance we feel like. We're just constantly behind God, and we owe God. We can never pay the penalty of our sins. And this deteriorates into guilt. Right, we just love life feeling guilty all the time. I'm constantly not enough. I can't, I have no satisfaction in my life because I'm constantly feeling left out. And there's no joy in this gospel. Joy is missing here. It talks about following and experiencing the joy of Christ, much less pleasure, joy. If we're living by this, it's not even close. Then there's the gospel of punishment. Not only do I owe God something, but I actually deserve to be punished for what I did. So I've done some bad things, and God's going to punish me. And even though maybe that punishment doesn't fit the crime, I start looking at everything bad that has happened in my life, and I think I've caused it, because look at what I've done. God must punish me. So this comes from God, and I, I guess I deserve it. Pain and suffering become our norm, and this deteriorates into shame. I just start living as if I'm shameful, I'm not enough, and there is no love in this gospel. There's no love here. And the last distortion of the gospel I want to tell you about this morning is the gospel of prestige. This is where I actually turn the tables around on God, and I think God is lucky to have me. Like, I look at me. Look at what I can do for you, God. Aren't you glad that that I chose to be on your team? Like, this isn't God picking teams. This is you going, all right, God, come on. Come on, You you can be on my side. And when we do this, we think that we have this deep inherent worth or value that's better than anybody else. 
and that God loves us and that he's actually begging to have a relationship with us. And this deteriorates into pride very quickly. That we think God has chosen to love me more than others and he is just up in heaven wringing his hand, please, please accept me, please accept me. And can I tell you what, there's, there's, there's no repentance in this gospel. There's no repentance before God. But there is a gospel that sustains. There's a gospel that brings pleasure, that gives an overwhelming desire, and that is the gospel of grace. And while all these other ones are man-made distortions, the gospel of grace is the true gospel. The distorted gospels are, are man-made attempts to prove himself to God, to fill his desire for forgiveness, restoration, and redemption through man-made terms and decisions. But the gospel of grace is this. It is the work of God to restore man. It is God making a path to man versus man trying to make a path to God. And this is where pleasure begins. This is where it begins in our life. And the fact that God has pursued me and he is providing for me, that I'm not walking through this life alone and with the weight of the world on my shoulders, I can find pleasure in him through the work of Jesus. And what is the work of Jesus? It is this in simple two statements. It was the fact that God came in the flesh to this world. He willingly took on the sin of every man, woman, and child so that he could experience the full wrath of God exercised on him. He died, rose again, and overcame the penalty of sin, clearing the pathway for me and you to be fully restored and redeemed to our Creator. That's the work of Christ. That's the gospel of grace. To experience salvation, all I must do is this, to make a conscious decision to turn from sin and self and to embrace Jesus as my Savior from my sins and as the Lord that provides constant community and wisdom in my life. I turn from myself thinking I can solve this. I turn from my sin, from my rebellion, and I trust Him as Savior and Lord. Can I ask you a question this morning? What gospel have you been trying to experience pleasure through? Which one of those gospels have you been holding on to? Because I want you to see something. All of those carry pieces of the gospel, but they're not the whole. I want you to hear this. When we experience the gospel of grace, then through grace, I get to do the work of the gospel. Then through faith, I can believe the words of the gospel. And through truth, I can experience the wonders of the gospel. And then through joy, I can overcome the penance of the gospel. And through love, I can overcome the punishment of the gospel. And through repentance, I can experience the prestige of the gospel. That is the gospel of grace. And too many of us for too long have been using a counterfeit gospel, just like counterfeit money, to think that we can experience true pleasure. And today, God is saying to us, put away your counterfeit money and pick up the riches of the gospel of grace that will provide you pleasure more than you can ever imagine. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me?